I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 8. We're going to actually be looking primarily at the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, uh, which is one of those Christmas prophecies that we uh, often mention at this time of the year. While you're turning to Isaiah chapter 8, let me make an announcement that I forgot. I didn't write it down, and so I didn't remember it, but I do want to remind you that Pastor Justin and his family are on vacation, and this is a vacation they planned for for a long time, and it's a big, big family event. So please, please pray for them this week, that God will bless them, that they will have a wonderful family time, and that they'll come back refreshed uh, from their trip. So please be remembering them uh, this week. I want us to look this morning at Isaiah chapter 8, verses 20, through chapter 9, verse 7. Of course, when we get down to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, uh, those are familiar Christmas words. I want us to look at the context of uh, this passage this morning. Uh, what I am planning on doing, just to give you a heads up, is uh, we're going to look at this passage this morning, and then, uh, God willing, tonight we will be looking at the names of Christ uh, that, are, that is found at the end of verse 6. We'll be looking at those first two names, Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God. And then, uh, God willing, two weeks from this, from this morning, on Sunday morning, two weeks from now, we will look at the end of verse 6 and verse 7. So, that uh, is the plan that we'll look at this passage uh, for three times. Let's read this passage together. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20 through chapter 9, verse 7. To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. You, they have rejoiced before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of this burden and the staff for this shoulder, the rod of this oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
Now, before we uh, look at our text this morning, I want to make two observations by way of introduction. One spiritual and one historical. First, the spiritual observation that I want to make before we look at this prophecy. I want to remind you that when we read about kings and kingdoms of empires and conquest and battles and destruction of slavery and bondage and captivity, of famine and hardship, we are to always remember that these things are pictures and illustrations and symbols and shadows of our spiritual life. We talk about those real things, but they are always pictures and symbols and shadows of our spiritual life. And your life today your spiritual life today, our modern, in our modern, sophisticated world that might seem so far removed from the harsh world of ancient Israel and all this business about kings and kingdoms and, and these things that I just mentioned. These things that are going on, these things are the very things that are going on right now in our hearts in the 21st century. Our hearts are all about battles and destruction and slavery and captivity and famine and hardship. The sober history of Judah in Israel in Isaiah's day is prophecy that speaks directly to your life and to my life. And the prophecies and the promises, promises that were made are all about me and you and Christ's church today. History itself is a form of prophecy because none of these events happened by chance. None of these circumstances were random. History is providential history. History is purposeful history. History is planned history. And God so ordered those things, those events, those nations, those kings, those promises, those prophecies to teach us about ourselves. And we might say it this way. All the struggles that they had externally, on the outside, in the real world, mirror the struggles and challenges that we have internally in our hearts and our souls. In Isaiah's day, Judah and Israel had real enemies. Your soul has real enemies. Judah and Israel were faced with real blessings and real judgments because of their faith or because of of their unbelief. Your soul will have real blessing or real judgment because of your faith or because of your unbelief. History is prophecy and it teaches us because it is providential and purposeful and planned. Please don't think that that Isaiah chapter 8 and chapter 9 don't have anything to do with us. I assure you that they do. May God help us to be warned and be encouraged by these things that happened way back in Isaiah's day. The second observation I'd like to make before we start looking at our text is historical. Let me just give you a little bit of the background of this passage of Scripture. We don't know a lot about the man Isaiah. Chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that he was the son of Amoz and that he ministered during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah. Tradition says that his father Amoz was the brother of King Amaziah. Now, King Amaziah was the king just before Uzziah, the first king during Isaiah's ministry. 
And this would explain to us the close association that Isaiah has with the kings, the priests of his day, and his involvement with national affairs. Do you ever wonder how in the world did Isaiah just go in and talk to the king? I mean, people didn't just do that. Well, apparently, uh, Isaiah had these uh, inside connections to the kingly family, and so he had the opportunity to have access to the king. According to tradition, Isaiah was executed by the evil king Manasseh only a few years after he ascended to the throne. It is believed by, by some that Isaiah was sown in two. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37, there is a, a reference that, uh, to the fact that some were stoned, some were thro- uh, sown in two, some were killed with the sword. And though we cannot be certain that Isaiah died in this way, many think that that reference in, in Hebrews eleven thirty-seven, they were sown in two, is referring to Isaiah. At any rate, Isaiah prophesied during the period of approximately 50 years from the year 739 B.C., 690 B.C., so quite a long time ago, almost 3,000 years ago. What was going on in Judah and Israel at the time that this word of prophecy was given by the prophet Isaiah? Well, Ahaz is king in Judah. It's a time of great political turmoil and uncertainty in the nation of Judah. The circumstances could hardly be darker. Here is a godless nation. The throne is occupied by a spiritually dead king. The capital city itself is being threatened. Assyria is rising to be a world power and is expanding its empire and it's attacking Israel and Syria just north of Judah. Judah refuses to join Israel and Syria to fight against the aggression of Assyria. And in response to that, Judah is now being threatened by the kings of Israel and and Syria. So Judah wants to stay out of it. They don't want to have trouble with Assyria. They refuse to help Israel and and help Syria to the north. And now they're being threatened by those two closer lands. We know later that Judah was eventually attacked and defeated by Israel and Syria. We can read about that in 2 Chronicles chapter 28. Against Isaiah's counsel, Ahaz seeks aid from the Assyrians. But rather than receiving help from the king of Assyria, 2 Chronicles 28 tells us that the king of Assyria Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. And Ahaz and Judah end up, by the end of his reign, under the harsh thumb of Assyria. At the end of uh, 2 Chronicles 28, in the very last paragraph about Ahaz and his death, we read these words. In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this same King Ahaz. And speaking of his idols and his false gods, the scriptures tell us that they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. But these things have not happened yet back in chapter 7, 8, and 9 of the book of Isaiah. And here Isaiah is advising Ahaz to trust the Lord and warning him of what will happen if he does not believe. But Ahaz will not listen. At the time that this is happening, Ahaz is afraid for his own safety and for his crown. But despite all the danger that, that is around him, he is not moved to show any kind of repentance that will bring him back to God. 
There are only a few believing people left in the entire nation of Judah. They are that small believing remnant that God always keeps by His grace. Isaiah has prophesied the utter and complete destruction of the nation and of Jerusalem, and it will be a terrible time. But in the midst of the terrible darkness of those days, this prophecy of chapter 9 will be fulfilled and a great light will appear. Now let's look at these verses in Isaiah chapter 8 and chapter 9. First of all, verse 20. To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. This prophecy points us to the teaching or the law. The word there is the word Torah and the testimony. What are these two things? Well, these two things are the word of God that are to be obeyed and the body of teaching and doctrine that, is to, that we are to believe. What we are to do and what we are to believe is the law and the testimony. And if they, that verse refers to they, if they, that is the king's counselors, the advisors, the religious leaders, the leading voices in society, if they will not speak according to this word, that is the law and the testimony revealed by God, it is because they have no dawn. Now the principle that is expressed is very simple. It is that the word of God is light. And if you do not have God's word, you do not have light. Now, that's a subject in itself. Let me give you just two references. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Proverbs 6, 23. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. E.J. Young, uh, Young in his commentary on Isaiah says this, Light is found in the law of God, the written revelation, the scriptures. Those who speak contrary to the scripture have no dawn. They remain in the darkness of deep, deep night. Upon them the morning light has not broken, nor will it break till they turn as little children to the law and submit their thinking to it. Then will the early rays of morning light shine and the full light of the sun break forth. The Israel of Isaiah's day was looking everywhere but to the word of God for answers. And God says that they don't, God says that they don't have even the first hint of the light of dawn. They are in utter darkness. Now, what are the consequences of not being informed by the word of God? Whether it's for a nation, whether it's for a person. Well, verse 21 tells us this. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. Note that this verse says, when they are hungry, for hungry they will certainly be. You remember Matthew 4, 4, our Lord says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The language here is the, is, are words like greatly distressed and hungry. Without the word of God, we will not have what we need the most. We will not have the basic necessities of life. These people are later, as, as events unfold, going to literally be hungry. But the greater hunger is the hunger of the soul without Christ and without his word. 
Note how people in darkness without the word of God react. These hungry people are distressed. They are in a frenzy. They are in a panic. Our verse says that they will be enraged. Note that they are angry at the world. And because of it, they curse their king and their God. Now, cursing the king is, in fact, to curse against the providence of God in this world. It is not just a rejection of the king. It is a rejection of the God who orders all things. And note that they also curse God directly. They shake their fists at heaven and they curse God. They do that rather than to repent and to seek aid from heaven. That is their darkness. Note in the next verse that having rejected heaven, they look to earth. Verse 22 says, And they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. People look to themselves, to their own resources, to secular resources, to the things of this world. And the prophet is crystal clear about what men find when they look everywhere except for to God and his word. They find distress. They find darkness. They find the gloom of anguish. They find thick darkness. Know that they will be thrust into, that is, they will be driven into thick darkness. This is God's doing. They cannot find light or relief because they are looking everywhere but where the light can be found. But they also cannot find light because God is forcing, driving, thrusting them, these unbelieving people, into the deepest darkness, the deepest, thickest darkness. What a terrible picture. And what if the message from God to Judah ended here? But it does not. Look with me at verse 1. Verse 1 tells us that the darkness that is coming and that is growing darker and darker, darker is not final and that the gloom that is coming upon them is not a permanent gloom. The prophet in verse 1 is turning the hearts of the people to look forward, which is where true faith always looks. Verse 1 says this, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. There will be anguish. There will be hard days of judgment ahead for this nation that will will not listen to the word of God. But that is not the end of the story. The time is coming when there will be, our verse says, no gloom. Our verse has a very interesting statement next. It says, in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. He, God, brought contempt on Zebulun and Naphtali. He had judged them. He had brought darkness on their land. But this is the former time. A day is coming when that will be in their past. But why does Isaiah, through the Spirit of Christ, speak of Zebulun and Naphtali? Isaiah the prophet is speaking to all of Judah and all of Israel. All of Judah and all of Israel are in this condition of darkness and refusing to listen to the Word of God. And this prophecy is primarily concerning the land of Judah. Yet this verse addresses these two tribes of, of Israel. Why? What is the uh, reference? Why is the reference specifically about these two tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali? Well, let me suggest 
in answer to you. These two tribes are the northernmost tribes in the northeastern corner of Israel. They were the first to be devastated and carried into captivity by invading armies. And so it had always been for these tribes on the, on the northern fringe of the nation of Israel. Anytime there was trouble, it came first to these people. While the other tribes had dominated and for the most part removed the original Canaanite tribes and nations from their territories, this was never accomplished in these harsh, remote lands up in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. The population of this area was a mixed people of Jews and Gentiles. Being the most remote part of the nation, far away from Judah and Jerusalem, it was exposed to the most foreign influences and was the least exposed to Jewish influences and to the true religion that was found in worship in Jerusalem. These people were the backward, uneducated, hill country people of Israel. Back in Solomon's day, he gave 20 cities from this remote region to Hiram, king of Tyre. Even in New Testament times, this area is held in contempt by others in Israel. Do you remember the reaction of Nathan when he heard about Jesus of Nazareth? Nazareth being a city of this area, Zebulun and Naphtali. Nathan says, Nathaniel says in John 1.46, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? In John chapter 7 and verses 41 and 52, the people say, Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the way the people viewed this part of Israel. So why is all of this important? Well, there's an important gospel implication to this reference to Zebulun and to Naphtali. God is able to deliver even the most unlikely people from darkness into his marvelous light. God is able to not only bring to bring salvation to the dark nation of Judah and the unbelieving people of Jerusalem, but he is able to go into the darkest corners of the land, the places where the darkness is the thickest and the gloom most distressing and overpowering. And there, in that place, the worst place, the hardest place, there he can bring glory and light and salvation. Do you know people that you would long to see come to Christ, but you think they will never come. They will never believe. They will never be saved. Well, dear ones, their name is Zebulun and Naphtali. And they may be far from the temple of Jerusalem, and they may be where, uh, where the, uh, the deep influence of people who do not know God is the greatest, but God can make His light shine where they are. And if he can bring glory to the dark land of Zebulun and Naphtali, he can bring glory anywhere and to anyone. And this ought to encourage us concerning the gospel and the salvation for those that we have concerns about. What is the significance of the last statement, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations? Again, there is a tremendous gospel importance to this statement. The prophet is making it clear that when true glory comes, it will be for all the people of the world. The word Galilee actually means circuit or region or district. 
It will not be just Judah and Israel that are brought to glory, but God's light will shine first from the regions of the Gentiles, from the districts of the nations. One of my favorite verses in the Old Testament is Isaiah 49, 6. It's a wonderful verse. It says this. It is too light a thing, that is, it is too insignificant a thing that you, speaking about the Christ, that you be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserve of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation shall reach to the ends of the earth. And so God says about his son, it is too small a thing. It is too insignificant a thing for you just to come back and save Israel. You are going to save the whole world. And aren't you glad that God has been pleased to do this? You see, we are the Galilee of the nations. That is us this morning. We are the districts, the regions, the areas of the Gentile nations. Verse 2 says this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in the land of deep, deep darkness, on them light shone. Note that there is deep darkness. We might say great darkness. But the light that shines is a great light. Also note that there is a very interesting verb tense in this verse. The people have seen. On them has light shone. These are past tense statements. Often the scriptures will speak of something that is future, but is absolutely certain in the past tense. And so we have it here. It has not happened yet in Isaiah's day. But it is so certain that God will do this that it is spoken of as if it is already done. Was the prophecy, all of this talk about darkness and light and gloom and glory, just a lot of religious gobbledygook and mumbo-jumbo and nonsense? Well, we know that it was not. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. In Isaiah's day, this has not happened yet, but it will come to pass, and it has come to pass. <clears throat> and we read about it here in Matthew chapter 4. Now when he heard, that is when Christ heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of, Ze of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And now in verse 15, he is going to be quoting from our passage in Isaiah chapter 9. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, excuse me, <coughs> beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There was no light. There was no dawn in Israel. Because the word of God was not there. But when our Lord Jesus Christ begins to preach the word of God in this land, there is light and there is glory. When he goes forth preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is hand. The light is blazing bright in this dark land. 
in verse 3. We read, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at harvest, as they, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. How has the nation been multiplied? In Isaiah's day, the nation was being diminished. Masses of people were being killed and taken into captivity. The nation was only a few years from, being, from, dis, from really disappearing from the face of the earth. But this nation will multiply through the gospel. It is multiplied because the districts of the Gentiles are being brought into it. It is multiplied because it is reaching out into dark places that are far, far away. And wherever the gospel light is, is shining, this nation is being multiplied. Know that there is rejoicing in that it is the joy of harvest. Now, in a predominantly agricultural society... Harvest is either a time of disappointment or a time of great joy. There's uncertainty every year and all throughout the year. Will the seed be good? Will it rain enough? Will the yield from the crops be plentiful or will it be sparse? Will there be disease or, or insects or storms that destroy the crops? When the harvest time comes and the crops have been gathered in and provision for the year is safely in hand, there is great joy and satisfaction. So it will be when the nation is multiplied. There will be great joy over the great harvest of people that see the light of the gospel. Now our text now gives us three reasons for the great joy that will accompany the glory of the great light. Note that verses 4, 5, and 6 each begin with the word for. There are three reasons. The first two reasons are for what is gone. The third reason is for what has come. Verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. The first reason for joy is the removal of yoke, staff, and rod. These are words about bondage and slavery. These are the instruments of oppression. These three terms are words that in Isaiah's day would have immediately brought to the mind of people in Israel the bondage in Egypt and the great exodus deliverance that happened in those days. The first reason for joy is that the people who hear and believe the word of God are delivered from great bondage. They are set free by the glorious light of God's truth. Now the scriptures are clear that we are slaves to sin and that when we are brought to faith in Christ, we are rescued from this cruel taskmaster. It is easy to understand why attention would be drawn to the great deliverance of Egypt, but why out of all the things from Israel's past are we reminded in this verse about the deliverance from Midian? I suggest that this is an especially appropriate reference. Do you remember who the hero of Midian is? Many of you will know. I bet some of the children will know. It is Gideon. And what was the miracle of Gideon's exploits against the Midianites? Well, it was twofold. First, Gideon was permitted to take only 300 men. I think he originally had something like 13,000 men 
at his disposal. And he was permitted to take only 300 men against a force of about 135,000 soldiers. Why did God do that? Well, God wanted there to be no question about who was doing this great work, that it was God that was saving them and that they were not saving themselves. The second part of this miracle is, what was their weapon? Their weapon were trumpets and torches hidden in jars. And what does Midian and his little band of men do? They infiltrate the soldiers, the people of Midian, the, the camp of the Midian army, and they break their jars, they blow their trumpets, and they raise their torches up in the air. And the sudden display of light in every direction during the dark of night causes panic and confusion in the army of the Midianites and they grab their swords and they fight and kill everything they see. And who are they only seeing? And who are they only fighting? And who are they only killing but other soldiers in the army of the Midianites? And so there is this sudden, unexpected display of light that broke the yoke of bondage on the day of Midian. And I suggest that, uh, and you can read about that in Judges chapter 7, and I suggest that the parallel between that and what is happening in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali should be obvious. And so the first reason for joy is deliverance from slavery. It is the joy of freedom. Now in verse 5 we read this, For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The second reason for joy is this, Conflict and war have been so completely ended, and the peace that has come is so complete that every warrior has, has had even his boots and his uniform taken away. The picture here is of disarming the enemy's, enemy soldiers down to even their boots and their bloody clothes. These things are to be burned because they are needed no more. This shows how complete and permanent the peace will be. These things, quote, will be burned as fuel for the fire. There will be no, no need for the warriors any longer to have uh, not only their weapons, but even their uniforms and their boots of war. Now verses 6 and 7, and the third reason for joy. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now here is the third and the most important reason for joy. This is the climax of this entire prophecy. And in these words, we are given the reason that there is deliverance and peace. Those first two reasons for great joy. There will be light. There will be joy. There will be freedom. There will be great blessing. There will be everlasting peace. But why? How will these things come to be? It will be through the coming of this great deliverer. 
This person is Israel's Messiah, none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. And Isaiah describes him in this way. Let me remind you that in Isaiah's day, the believing remnant would have, would have seen in these words a great promise concerning the Messiah. But it was to be another 700 years later before God's people could see in the full light of day the full meaning of these words. Our text says, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. Now these two statements are not saying the same thing twice. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. As a child he was born, as a son he was given. These two statements are describing the two natures of our Lord Jesus Christ. As a child he was born into this world. This is his humanity. He is a true man through and through. As a son, he was not born, but he was given. This is his deity. He is God through and through. In these two statements, we have a clear picture of the uniqueness of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. No one is like this person. We cannot be right in our theology or in our doctrine, and more importantly, we cannot be right in our hearts unless we think in a right way about the Lord Jesus Christ. We could say that this is an acid test for all people and their spiritual life. What do you think about the Lord Jesus Christ? What is your view of Christ? What do you think about the person of Christ? When we think about the person of Christ, we're in the realm of the miraculous and the supernatural. There is no natural explanation for the incarnation. There is no natural explanation for God in the flesh. As Christians, as Christians, we cannot explain it. But as Christians, every one of us believes it. It is, in fact, precisely what we believe when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, because everything we believe in Him for can only come from Him if He is both God and man. Paul, speaking of Christ, says it this way in 1 Timothy 3.16, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. And here Isaiah is declaring this fundamental truth. You have two natures in one person. It is foundational and it is fundamental. In John 1 we read this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Isn't this exactly what Isaiah is talking about, I suggest to you that it is. And in case there is any doubt about what Isaiah says about this child, he says this, His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, Lord willing, we're going to look at the meaning of these names later. But suffice it to say this morning, it would be wrong to assign these names and these titles to any mere man, it would be wrong, it would be blasphemous, for these are the names of God. There is so much more to say about the person of Christ, but 
we must stop here and just ask this question. What lessons can we learn from this prophecy given almost 3,000 years ago? Does it have anything to say to us? I would like to suggest to you two things for your consideration and reflection. And the first is this. This whole prophecy is given to address this issue that faces every human heart. Are you walking in darkness or are you walking in light? I wanted this, I wanted this morning, if I, and I ask every one of you who, who is here this question, have you ever felt something of this darkness in yourself? This darkness, this thick darkness that the prophecy talks about? Not knowing what you need to know to live and to die happily and safely. Not knowing the God who made you. Not knowing the way of salvation. Do you hear the gospel week after week? And do you think, what really is the big deal? I, I just don't get what these people are about. May I suggest kindly that if you think that way, that that is the way that people think when they are in darkness. Not knowing who God is. Not knowing who you are. Not knowing how God and sinners are brought together. Have you ever felt this darkness? Have you ever needed the light? Are you still walking in darkness and you don't know how to change your situation? Well, we think that in our modern world we are so enlightened. But dear ones, uh, people in uh, People in this world don't know the value of the soul. They're in the dark about God. They're in the dark about God's word. They're in the dark about what the meaning and the purpose of life is. We can think that we're so advanced and we're so knowledgeable. Dear ones, we're so advanced that we kill unborn babies and we justify it in our dark minds. And then we call that Enlightenment. I would suggest to you that that, dear ones, is darkness. We love violence and lust and greed. and We have forgotten that we have only one soul. And in every way we go against the word of God. And this is not enlightenment. This is darkness. Isaiah tells us plainly, if you're looking anywhere, but to the word of God for light. You're in, the, you're in a darkness that will grow and grow until it becomes the darkest night and the deepest gloom. Light is only found in the word of God. And what is the word of God really? Well, more than anything else, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the word of God. Listen to these verses from John's gospel. John 1, verses 4 and 5. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 8, 12, Christ says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. The scriptures tell us that we love darkness rather than light. May God give every one of us grace to seek the light of Christ. And dear one, if you're not a Christian, will you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who is light 
and freedom and peace. And one last observation. Please note that at the heart of every promise and every hope that we receive from the, from the prophecy of Isaiah 9 is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Note that the light does not come through a system of philosophy. Light does not come from an excellent moral code. Light does not come from principles of ethics. Light does not come from a system of religion. Light does not come through liturgies or forms or religious formalities. Light comes in a person. Christ himself is the light. Speaking about the statement about a child is born, E.J. Young says this, the form of the verb, that is the, the, the verb born, really emphasizes the historical nature of this birth. The deliverance which brings rejoicing to the people of God is not something vague, but is something to be brought about by a birth in history upon this earth at a definite time and in a definite place. We're supposed to be thinking about a definite time, a definite place, a definite person, everything, every time we think about Christmas. When you see the nativity scenes, the Christmas cards, the decorations, the candles in the windows, the Christmas trees, the lights everywhere, what do you think about? Isaiah says that this is what we should think about when we see these things, light, freedom, peace, and joy. And please don't call the Christ child a sweet little baby in a manger or a sad little baby sleeping in a stable because there is no place for him in the inn. It's not just a nice story. We should not think about the Christ child in that way. Think about the Christ child like this. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, King. Every time you think about Christmas, every time you think about the little baby Jesus, He is to be called in those terms. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. May God help us to think this way uh, about Christmas and about the Christ this year. Let's close with a word of prayer.